daily step counts and intensity with cancer and cardiovascular disease incidence and mortality and all-cause mortality. The artificial sweeteners change the risk of cardiovascular disease. Nutritionally profiling food or reporting ultra-processing, which of those impacts mortality? And do data support screening children and adolescents for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I hope you'll agree that we should turn to JAMA and take a look at this notion of should we be screening children for diabetes? We are certainly seeing a huge increase in the incidence of type 2 diabetes among this group. What are we learning from the USPSDF? Great. And as you mentioned, this is United States Preventative Services Task Force Recommendation Statement, and it commissioned a review of all the evidence looking about screening for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes in asymptomatic kids, non-pregnant children, adolescents younger than 18 years of age. And it basically centers around these questions. And I'm going to ask you the question, and you tell me whether the answer is yes or no. Is there direct evidence of screening for prediabetes and type 2 diabetes in asymptomatic kids improves their health outcomes? Yes or no? No. Not enough data. You're right. Do we know enough about the harms and benefits of screening in this population? No. No, you're right. If we initiate treatment early on, once you've detected it, does that improve their outcomes? We don't know. Absolutely don't know. And can we prevent progression to type 2 diabetes in people with prediabetes in that population? Don't know that either. Don't know that either. In fact, we don't know very much at all about this population. And that is the opinion of the USPSTF. So this is really unusual because every other time we've reported over the last two decades, they provide recommendations based upon the existing data. And they oftentimes update that. But their conclusion here was, gosh, here's a population that's growing by millions because a large proportion of children and adolescents have both diabetes and prediabetes. In fact, that incidence has increased 95% over the last couple of decades. And yet we still don't know enough about whether screening this group really improves their outcome or not. So this particular recommendation was, let's get some data. I'm pretty unsatisfied with this, and I will reveal that a study that was partially done at Hopkins, but also around the country, reported in the last two years, so just during the pandemic, the incidence of type 2 diabetes among adolescents increased 77%. Many of these kids are hospitalized with severe metabolic complications of type 2 diabetes. And it just seems like, look, how can we defend that we don't have enough data here? I think your point's very well taken. And I'd say not only in children in general, but high-risk groups in particular, American Indians, Blacks, and Hispanic youth have a particularly high incidence. This is a chance for us to align studies with unanswered questions that we just talked about. Right. And I don't think, though, that that argues for any kind of a delay in treating a kid who is obese, sedentary, and has risk factors. When you say treat them, you mean with lifestyle change? You mean putting them on a medication? Lifestyle changes are the beginning of any treatment plan for diabetes, for type 2 diabetes. 
So I would agree with that. But the real question is, okay, so let's say we institute those. How well does that prevent type 2 diabetes? And when should that be initiated, by the way? And those are questions we don't know. Are we better off adding a medication to it or not? We both, after decades of recording, talk about the importance of healthy lifestyles, diet, exercise, physical activity. But again, many of these questions go unanswered in this particular population. Well, you did bring up one issue, which is when you put them on a medication, does that mean they're going to be taking it for the remainder of their lifetime? And I think another unanswered question here is if we see a significant weight loss and improvement in physical activity, can this condition be reversed in this population, which we have seen in many adults? The authors here talk about what we see in adults oftentimes doesn't apply to children. And that's why we need to dig in. Well, since we're talking about lifestyle things, let's turn to the BMJ. And this is a rather strange study that takes a look at ways of categorizing foods and what are the impact of those different foods with mortality, something called the Moly-Sani Prospective Cohort Study, which is conducted in Italy. Turns out that there's a couple ways that in Europe, they label foods. One of them is with regard to nutritional content of foods, so-called FSAM-NPS Dietary Index. And this gives rise to something that's known as the Nutri-Score, which they can label foods with. And then there's also another classification that's called the NOVA classification, which is an index of how ultra-processed a food is. So how poorly nutritional is it really? And then they looked at what are the risks relative to all-cause and cardiovascular mortality relative to these two ways of assessing foods? They make a statement that I think is really interesting. It is totally unequivocal at the beginning of this paper. They say poor diets are responsible for more deaths than any other risk factor globally and are the leading cause of obesity and non-communicable diseases. So before I go on on the data, what do you think of that statement? That's a pretty powerful statement. But again, it indicates the importance of diet. And as you said, both nutrition and processing as well. So tell us what the data show about each of those. Okay, so they have almost 23,000 participants. During their time period of follow-up, which was 12 years, they had a total of 2,205 deaths. The upshot of the whole thing is sure enough, if you have a not great diet, you are going to die both from all cause and cardiovascular mortality faster than you are if you have a better diet. What about the intersection of these two things? They say that the association of the FSAM-NPS dietary index with all cause and cardiovascular mortality was attenuated by 22% and 15% respectively, whereas mortality risks associated with ultra-processed foods were not altered by their joint indices. In part, the mortality risk associated with nutritionally unbalanced food is due to the fact that it's processed. Conversely, however, the fact that processed food increased mortality has nothing to do with the nutritional content at all. That means these are two complementary different dimensions. Europe is about to embark upon a program that on the front of the package, it's going to tell you the nutritional content. It's going to use different color coding schemes but it doesn't tell you anything at all about the processing. And what these authors are suggesting is, hey, we really need to look at both because the processing puts in things, chemicals, that even if it's nutritionally of value, you don't want to be having some of these additives that can increase inflammation, they're associated with increased cardiovascular disease, associated with 
increased metabolic disorders. And therefore, knowing both of those things ends up being important with regard to looking at overall diet. Right, exactly. And they're both important. So we really need to assess both of them. They drilled down and they looked at different aspects of blood counts and C-reactive protein and so forth that were relative to both of these ways of looking at food. They did find some disparities between them. In essence, what happens is with the low nutritional diets, it changes the glycemic index and how you process sugar. With the ultra-processed foods, there was an increased risk and altered kidney function and higher inflammation as well. So it does give some biologic plausibility to why each of those different compositions, the nutrition and the processing end up being important. Exactly. So are you then in favor of some metric that's going to establish a measure of both of these things with regard to food labeling? I am, Elizabeth, but it has to be simple. Let's move on to your next one. That's also in the BMJ. It is. And it's a look at artificial sweeteners and the risk of cardiovascular disease. It's done based upon a prospective study done in France. Even though we use artificial sweeteners to replace sugar and beverages, we also do that in tabletop sweeteners and dairy products. There's been some concern that they may not overall be healthy. What this study did was they had over 103,000 participants where they looked at the dietary intake of artificial sweeteners by doing repetitive 24-hour dietary records over a course of several years. They looked at total artificial sweetener intake, and they found out it was associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. It increased it by about 10%. They looked at both heart disease and cerebrovascular disease. They looked at individual sweeteners. And for example, aspartame increased the risk of cerebrovascular disease, whereas sucralose was associated with the increased risk of coronary heart disease. It is an observation study. Therefore, it can't really talk about causation. Gosh, we just talked about ultra-processed foods, and these things are frequently found in ultra-processed foods. And so I'm wondering if there really isn't some aspect of biological plausibility here. It's very hard to sort these things out. It may be that people that use artificial sweeters have a worse diet, older, have other risk factors, and all those things together characterize the person, not one particular thing. As we know, the only thing that's ultimately going to answer this is going to be a prospective study where we feed these things to different groups of people and try to control for all the other risk factors. And I just don't see that happening. Maybe training oneself not to need a sweetener at all might be the best strategy. Yep. In in fact, we've talked before about best dietary habits. Interestingly enough, those people that use the artificial sweeteners were less likely to have diets that were healthy. Finally, let's turn to JAMA Internal Medicine, and this is a prospective associations of daily step counts and intensity with cancer, cardiovascular disease, incidence of mortality, and all-cause mortality. I'd like to just mention that last week, there was also a study that took a look at daily step counts and the association with the development of Alzheimer's disease that got a tremendous amount of attention. And the upshot of this whole thing, and it's no surprise to anybody, is of course, it's really good to get out there and do those steps. This is a study taking a look at the UK Biobank from 2013 to 2015 with a median follow-up of seven years. Using a wrist accelerometer measure daily step count, cadence-based step intensity measurements. And these included three categories, incidental steps, purposeful steps, and peak 30 cadence. 
Their outcomes were all-cause mortality, primary and secondary cardiovascular disease, or cancer mortality and incidence diagnosis. What they found was that, sure enough, doing those 10,000 steps a day may be associated with a lower risk of mortality, cancer, and cardiovascular disease incidence, and that those steps performed at the higher cadence may be associated with additional risk reduction. I appreciate you mentioning again, this is an association study, and they tried to correct for a number of different things, age and sex in one model, and then they tried to add race and education and socioeconomic status and smoking. There are several things it didn't address, the presence of hypertension or previous cardiovascular disease. The other issue is they just didn't accelerate and they just measured steps one time. So we'd like to have data that's a little bit longer because you can imagine we said, we're going to do this study, put an accelerometer and measure your steps. Most of us are going to want to get out there and look really good. But the question is, is that sustained? Nevertheless, it suggests that the more you walk, the better off you are. That sounds pretty logical to me. And if you walk, you do better than if you don't walk. And that also sounds like pretty common sense advice to me as well. And step it up sometimes. That's a great thing. Step it up. I like that. In Texas, we just do the two-step, but you're talking about doing the 10,000 step. <laughs> Indeed, I am. On that note, then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.